I wanted to run my best. Back in Rio on this Friday night, the opening ceremony of the 2016 Summer Games, and it begins in traditional form. Greece leads the parade yes. as they always do. I was really, really ready to run my fastest that I've ever run at that race. 2016 was Alexi Pappas' first Olympics, and this American-born runner was representing her father's home country, Greece. Our race was the fastest 10K in the history of the world. She is breaking the world record here by a bigger margin than anybody could possibly have imagined. 80% of the race broke national records. And that included Alexi, who smashed the Greek record with a time of 31 minutes and 36 seconds. Now, in a 10K, that is very fast, but it's still a long time to be running. I mean, to put this in perspective, you could watch an episode of your favorite TV show in the time it took Alexi to run those 25 laps. There's the bell, the final lap in the women's 10,000 meter final. The whole world is watching, but we're the show. I did this to myself, so I better hang in there. Stay, put, stay one foot in front of the other. This is In the Moment from Religion of Sports and PRX. I'm your host, David Green. Each week I sit down with an elite athlete to break down one of the most important moments in their career. And this week, it's Olympic runner Alexi Pappas and what it takes to make it onto the world stage. I don't know if I would have gotten there if I wasn't so, so driven like that because you have to become a monster to train and make it to the Olympics. Today I talked to Alexi about her Olympic moment, but also what comes afterwards for her and for other athletes and why she considers the 2016 Rio Games the end of the beginning of her life. Now it's like a lot more common speak that there's a post-Olympic depression, but nobody talked about it back then. More when we return. Fantasy football leagues are won on the waiver wire and with trades and with savvy starter sit decisions. The Fantasy Football Today podcast will help you along the way with the best advice on how to manage your team and dominate your league. With eight episodes per week, Fantasy Football Today is the only resource you'll need. Start, sit, grade the trade, fantasy cops to settle your league disputes, and so much more. Check out Fantasy Football Today anywhere podcasts are found. Alexi Pappas is an Olympic runner, also an author, a director, an actor, and a mental health advocate. She's become one of the most unique and influential people in the athletic space. Alexi wrote about the tragic loss of her mother when she was just five years old in her book, Bravey. And she continues to speak out publicly on social media, podcasts, and TV about the impact her mother's death had on her life. We'll have more on that later. But first, I wanted to go inside the mind of an Olympic runner during a grueling race like the 10,000 meters. The 10K is a race of attrition. So it's kind of like you're in a stampede, you're in a pack, and running is actually very, it's a contact sport. And European runners are very aggressive. But in Rio, Alexi was prepared for things to get kind of rough. That's because of a race she ran just a few weeks before those Olympics. It was my first international race and I fell, I got tripped. I got stepped on and trampled and like finished the race covered in blood. I remember how embarrassed I was because I wanted to like, the Greeks wanted me to podium 
And I didn't podium, obviously, but they were like, now we know you are a Greek because you fall down and you finish anyway. And Greeks always get back up. <laughs> so that was like cute. Oh my God. You proved yourself. Yes, you like, this like is, you didn't realize yes, it, but you were proving yourself. It's... But I also had the vocabulary to know you can get knocked over because everybody's trying to be in lane one you, in inside. You don't want to run more than you have to. So I learned how to like assert my space. And I remember visualizing ahead of like, I will assert my space. I played competitive soccer growing up. I'm not going to get knocked over. I was like, if someone goes down, I'm going to step on them. I have to tell you, you spend five minutes with Alexi and you realize she is just this person who is radiating positivity all the time. So to hear her say that, that she was going to step on someone, I mean, that was a bit of a shock. But this is all part of the headspace that she just had to be in to compete against the best in the world. My coach told me, like, you are probably going to get lapped in this race. And probably 95% of the race got lapped because the girl who won ran so fast. But being prepared to get lapped was so helpful because when other girls got lapped, they were the best in their country. They've never been lapped in a race and they lost their shit. Like they just were out the back or they tried to go with her or they just, they weren't prepared for that moment. And so when it hit them, they just fall off. So like I started in almost last place in this race because my coach was like, you will go out in this roughly this pace range, no faster for this amount of laps. And that meant not going with the momentum of the girl who broke the world record and being confident in myself that this is a pace I can sustain and keep. And other girls will come back to me because they will go out too fast and they will die. And talking to Alexi, I just kept thinking about this is not a sprint. In this kind of race, you've got to endure 10,000 meters of physical exertion. And you also need mental endurance. I mean, how the hell does a runner stay focused for that long? I count my laps like very specifically. I break my 10K up into 10 laps, 10 laps, 5 laps. And I like doing that because I don't want to do 5K, 5K for 10K because that's what everybody does. And I want to have my own game plan. The first 10 laps are meant to feel like I'm not doing work. And you convince yourself this is not work. I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. The second 10, you know it is work because to maintain that is a little bit harder. And then the last five are like whatever you want. Like you're going to get through the five laps. So if you feel good, go ahead. If you don't feel good, that is okay. It's only five. So that's sort of how I broke it up. And you saying these things to yourself as the race is going? Like, is that what you're... I'm saying stay. I'm saying the word stay. Just stay. Stay. <laughs> Which means what? Just stay in it? Like don't... Just stay. Yeah. Just keep stay. Put Stay on my own team. Stay one foot in front of the other. You can't do much else than that. Like some people are like, do you think about a family member every lap? I'm like, that's so many things to think about. You need to simplify, you know, because it's long. It's a long time to be going in circles. So Alexi sticks to that plan. She stays on her pace and she starts counting her laps. But in this particular race, which was the most important of her life, something was off. Specifically, I remember realizing that the stadium was exactly the same all the way around. And that was very difficult because usually I count my laps based on like, oh, there's a marker. And every time I go past that thing, it's a lap. And it was really confusing. <laughs> And I lost track and I actually thought that the second to last lap was my last lap. And I like took off and then I realized I had another lap 
And so I just had to sustain. And I was like, I did this to myself, so I better hang in there. That's probably why I ran so fast because I was like, well, I better run fastest lap two times. (laughs) If you're really in shape, like I was really in shape as I think everybody was, you start to like hover above yourself and you can kind of watch yourself running while you run it. Like you can amuse in it and be like, I'm doing it. I'm doing this. I'm at the Olympics. This is the Olympics. Like while you're doing it, that's very fun. When you're that in shape that you can like be amused by yourself. Like you're in a snow globe. I had the awareness that this was special no matter how I ran. So I wasn't like worried about meddling. I wanted to just have a really good experience. Alexi finished in the middle of the pack, 17th overall, but she broke the Greek national record at those Olympics. Up next, she tells us why she calls those Rio games the end of the beginning of her life. Take the advice she does. Stay, stay, stay with us. In the minutes before the race, like when you're standing there or or pacing around, like and getting ready, like what is in your mind? What are you thinking about? What are you visualizing? What are you smelling? What are you tasting? What are you hearing? Okay, so there's a warm up area. And only some special coaches were allowed in it. And we thought we had a pass for my coach, but the Olympics, you know, things get mixed up. And we found out he couldn't come in. And I remember going up to him on these gates. There's like guards, there's guard dogs, there's like barbed wire. Like he's not getting in. Okay. And I remember like putting my fingers through the gates and we like touched hands. This is so dramatic, like touching hands through a through a fence. It- yeah. And it was like, it was so sweet because he was just like, you're ready. You're ready for this. And it was like, oh my God, like I could cry right now because like, it was like a parent who like lets their kid go off to college or like a duck that sees their duckling off or whatever. I don't know. And it just, we, we cried a little bit. And then I went off and I did my warm up. And I had my music and and I just was very peaceful because I knew I was healthy. I knew I was fit. I knew that like I couldn't do anything to to make it any more ready. I just needed to show up and pay attention to the call times. So that's very difficult. There's three call times. So you have to be in this one call room and that's where they check your, your shoes. And then there's another call room. That's where they give you your bib. And then the, the volunteers are like loving, but firm. So they don't like help you pin your bib on, but they're like, here's the bib. Now move on. Like you're kind of in this like conveyor belt and you actually warm up like 90 minutes before your race, which isn't normal. And then you spend the rest of the time basically being transported from one call room to the next call room where they're going to check something else or have you do something else. There's very official things. And then this thing happened. Okay. So we're in the bleachers underneath all the people and they don't know we're there. We're just like underneath their butts. And we're in the final corral area, right? This little corral. And they were like, take off all your clothes. And they like yelled like, take off all your clothes. Wait, who's no, yelling? Like fa- con- spectators are yelling just, this? No, 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 no. The like a fi- the volunteers. Oh, the, bi- the bib people. The- it meant take off your sweats. And like now it's time to be in your uniform and go to the race. Because we were, this is the last call room. But it felt like something that someone like might yell at a rave or a party. And like, <laughs> I, you know, like I had a sense of humor the whole time where I was like aware of like, 
Like I could hear the instruction in the moment. And I also was in such a healthy mindset that I could like laugh in that moment. So we take off all of our sweats. We're wearing our uniforms, which is basically, you know, you're kind of naked. You're wearing very little clothes. And you have a rave and like you're in your imagination. You're thinking of this as like, yes, I'm like visualizing that. Exactly. And I was given like a really tiny uniform. So I was just like, great. I'm like the most underdressed person at this party. And then they were like, run across that mat. So they wanted to check our timing chips to see that they worked. And so we were meant to like trot across this mat to just have it beep and say, yes, you're like, you're on or whatever, because they need to track your time. And everybody jogged, you know, trotted across like a little horse and nobody brought water except me. I randomly had like a random water bottle and then they didn't let anybody go back. So they didn't tell us that you trot across and then you're not allowed to go back to your bag. That's it. And everybody started to freak out because nobody had water. And we still had like 30 minutes till the race because there's a lot of announcing and they walk you out and then there's videos and, and girls were freaking out. And I remember having a choice to make where I was like, okay, I could hoard my water or I can share my water. And one of the girls, the girl who broke the world record, she asked me for some water and I gave her my water. And then we shared you gave it. her all the water or you just like shared the I just the water? handed her the bottle and then she handed it to somebody. Like we just shared it. And so all the girls that were about to race, just like everybody got a sip of water. But it was just like the idea that like you had what you needed in a moment and like we could take care of each other. And then it became this whole thing of like, wow, this isn't me versus this girl. This is like all of us going to go up through this little stadium you know, alleyway and the whole world is watching, but we're the show and we are the show. This is, we're the team, we're the show. And it was such a beautiful, and it wasn't my, I didn't do this. It just happened. And it was really lovely. And it felt like all of a sudden it really was like, everybody do your best and like, everything's going to be fine. And like, let's all wait for each other to finish line. And just let's go make a parade out there. That's so beautiful. I never realized that. I always thought it had to be just uber competitive with each other. That spirit of camaraderie is lovely. I think people are more competitive with themselves. Like I think some people had a lot of pressure from their countries or from themselves, but it wasn't really from each other. You work so hard to get there that there's a lot of respect. The higher you get in sport, the more respect I think there is. I mean, the Olympics, you know, we all see them the games on TV, obviously, but have no idea what it's like to experience as, as an athlete. Um, I mean, in the Olympic village, like what, what should we know about? What's the culture like? What are you eating? What are you doing? Are you hanging out with other athletes? Like, what does it feel like in there um, oh, when you're not, yes. you know, actually <laughs> when we're not seeing you before ours on television? The Olympics is so amazing. It's like something that I hope everybody gets to experience if they want to and the village is really the best part to me the village i will never experience the the olympics as an athlete i just want to make that very clear well you don't know that i met a 60 year old (laughs) sailor like you don't know okay who's an olympian yeah oh sailing is all about experience and wisdom so all right i've uh, sailed with my dad i mean maybe okay all right there's hope let's get going (laughs) yeah maybe so the village was my favorite part because you know, I was told by my coach who went to the Beijing Olympics that they're all sort of the same. So like, it was nice to know, okay, like you're going to enter this tradition where you get to live in this place that comes about every four years or every two years um, with the winter Olympics. 
and uh, you get to live there. And I chose to live there. So some people will stay in a hotel outside or they'll come in two days before their competition. They'll skip the ceremonies. And I was like, nah, like I'm going to do this full on. So I arrived um, a few days before opening ceremonies, which was a few days before my race. And I was given a uniform. So every country has their country specific uniforms and they are sponsored by some local brand. So, you know, um, Armani is for Italy and H&M, I think was Sweden and US has Polo and Nike and Greece was a brand that sponsored a lot of the countries that didn't necessarily have a country specific brand. So we had a certain outfit. And um, so you're given these uniforms and that's what you wear the entire time. And it's so to breakfast cool. to lunch, to breakfast, lunch, like, hang out. You're all, everyone's all in uniforms. when you're jogging around and mine were like these giant basketball shorts, huge t-shirt with like the Greek key on it. But I was like, this is my uniform. I'm at camp. And like, it was so cool. Cause they all say your country on the back. And so, you know, even if you go to the UN, you still don't know like where everybody's from, but in the village, it's so clear just how diverse this place really is. It's like you're living in a movie because everybody's in a costume all the time. And um, <laughs> who had the coolest yeah. costume? Who had the what country? Oh, had the coolest uniform? Um, Belarus had these like weird, like cool Lisa Frank. Like, oh, I'm dating myself. Lisa Frank is like a very '90s reference here, but wow, these, like, Belarus designs all over them. Okay, but I really wanted an Armani. I wanted an Italian thing, and the, the tradition is to trade at the end of the Olympics. So after closing ceremonies or right around then you take off all your clothes like in the village and everyone's trading everything. And it's like a madhouse and everybody wanted Greek stuff actually because it's Greece is where the whole thing began. And it's a very yeah, classic Olympics thing. Yeah. So I managed to trade my not so great backpack for an Italian backpack and I have it. I mean, I have it behind me in, in the closet. Nice. I didn't trade everything, but you trade a lot of your stuff. And so you come home with this like mismatched outfit of all these other countries and it's so funny because it's like you don't even speak the same language as people you just like point and you're like i want that i want that and then you just like take your shirt off right there and trade but the village was fun because it's where athletes needed to be themselves and so the dining hall was the place where you could go 24 hours a day and enjoy your food and do the best people watching in the entire planet because that's where you know i saw michael phelps and i remember he had his hood up and he was just like, really, you know, like, I think we learned later that he might've had some, you know, mental health challenges going on, but like, I just, he just wasn't anything like you imagine in an interview at that time. He was just whatever he needed to be. And I think that was the coolest part about the village was seeing people like as peers be in their decompressed state. And probably everyone having empathy for one another, like knowing that this is your safe space, like to, to just unwind and yeah deal with the pressure, I guess, and be you. Yeah. You're sitting in an ice bath with like a bunch of people who are like terrified or nervous or excited and celebrating. And in the dining hall, people would come in and cheer their country's song if they won, or you'd see people look sad or nervous. Or, and it was like so fun to just be included in that. Could you bring like family, friends with you? <laughs> okay. This is where... Another reason why I felt very grateful. So every country you get six passes a day to let guests in. So every country for every sport. And that means if the president is visiting, he's getting one of the passes for the United States. Or if Phelps's family, for example, is visiting, they might get a pass for the day. Now, I ran for a country that had very 
much fewer athletes than my American peers and much fewer athletes who had family and people visiting because it was, it's hard to travel to the Olympics. And so I got to bring my husband, my dad into the village and nice. it was so special. Like for my dad, like, you know, he's a sports fan. He He's never going to go to the Olympics, but like to bring him into the village was like the greatest gift that I felt like I could give him to just say, thank you. You know, thank you for what, for raising, a, for raising me as like a single parent and like, you know, just a way to be like, we did this, like we did it. And you don't really know how to thank your parents for the things that they've done. And they don't necessarily want you to thank them, but I was, was like, I want to buy my dad a baseball team. Like I want to do this stuff for him. And like, he doesn't really want a baseball team. Like that's not the type of person he is, but like, this was a big, he was so maniacally happy sitting in the dining hall and just like watching all these, you know, near God, like creatures roam around and get their sandwiches and eat. And like, it was just like a really nice way for us to connect because sports were always how we communicated growing up. Oh, that sounds, that sounds lovely. Is there a moment that you remember like your dad fanboying out over someone or? I just remember him sitting there and just like being so happy. Like if you brought like, if you brought like a teenage boy to the world series, you know what I mean? Just like happy. And I also got to bring him, I was running for Nike at the time. I got to bring him to the Nike house and there's like a hospitality, a whole golf course. And he got to like get a massage and like, just like to be like treating him in the way that like to get, give him the things that we were allowed to have, you know, his love language is gifts, which is like a hilarious love language. So like just to get free stuff, shit you know like free stuff was like feeling the love he loves free stuff so he's Uh like go eat whatever you want like a buffet loves a buffet you know and like he just was happy to be included as anybody i think would be happy to be around greatness and it sounds like having him there was really special to you too yeah i mean nothing is like that fun alone in this world i think i mean you can enjoy things alone but you always want to like turn and share it with somebody you love, I think. You described it, I think, I was listening to one interview you did as the Olympics in 2016 being the end of the beginning of your life. Yes. (laughs) Why was it that pivotal for you? It was meaningful because I think that all growing up, like probably since with with what I experienced with my mom, I really felt like this core, you know, irrational, emotional belief that I didn't matter enough for my mom to stay because she took her own life. And I was so young that I couldn't, you know, process it in any other way. And nobody really talked to me about it. I didn't, I wasn't even told that she killed herself. I just, I was told by my best friend in seventh grade, but I kind of knew because I had seen some things where I was like, I don't know, something is like really messed up here, but it made me feel like she didn't matter enough to stay. And therefore I needed to one, be happy because I didn't want to be sad. Like I experienced with her and two, I wanted to objectively matter. And the Olympics was one way to objectively matter. And it was a really easy thing to target. In addition to like, I want to go to this Ivy league school and I want to date this guy and I want to get an A and whatever, whatever. All these external accomplishments are a very easy way to resolve an internal problem. And so I think the Olympics was like really, really great because I got there and, and, and I don't know if I would have gotten there if I wasn't so 
so driven like that because you have to become a monster to train and make it to the Olympics. You have to be very siloed, very focused. And so it meant a lot to me, but it also was the end of the beginning of my life because it didn't really fix any of those problems. So it really was the beginning. It wasn't like I finished the Olympics and then I was like, that void is gone now. Like you realize that like you could break a national record and have the best experience. I really did. It was amazing. And still like not have dealt with anything that you will eventually have to deal with, with being, you know, a complete person. I don't know if I advise people to live a life where they have something to have done. For me, I I wanted to do it and I did it. And I did it in a way where I would not change a thing. I wouldn't change anything about my Olympics. Like I really did it. And I feel so forever content with like my athletics. Like I'm still exploring and running and trying new things, but I'm not like, I have something to prove and I want to do it. I have done that. And I don't know what to say about that because it seems unhealthy to say that it's okay to want something to prove and to want to have done it. It seems really unhealthy to advise people but it also seems disingenuous to say that I didn't have that and that it doesn't feel good to have done it. Well, so you felt good that you had done it, but I want to hear kind of the the days and weeks after you did it. It sounds like you just didn't realize how how exhausting this was and how much it drained you. When did the, the high start to wear off the glow? Right after. Right after the race. Wow. Right after the race, I was so happy and like I was so satisfied well, first of all, interviewers ask you this question after every competition. Probably they ask creatives after big premieres. They ask you what's next. And it is a very problematic question. They should stop asking people because it really implies that you're not allowed to just be in the afterglow of what you just did. Yeah, don't even take a second. Just like start thinking, tell us about the future. Yeah, and and you don't think about what's next if you want to go to the Olympics because then you probably won't get there in the first place. But right when it's over, you've never thought about that moment. You never do. And I wish that I had prepared to be like, no matter what, I'm going to just pause and enjoy my family and not decide what's next and not exercise and not spin out. I didn't think about that. And nobody educated me. Like now it's like a lot more common speak that there's a post-Olympic depression, but nobody talked about it back then. It was so silent and it was, and everybody goes through it. Like I have a friend who won gold and went through it and people get last and go through it. So it's not like a just, everybody goes through it because there's such an adrenal buildup and so little preparation for the moment after. And so I rejected the kind of feeling I had afterwards, which was like that sadness because it reminded me of my mom and I wasn't very educated. And so what people told me about her was she was just so sad that she had to go. And I thought, well, then I better not get sad because otherwise I might have to go. And so when I started to feel sad, which was natural and normal after such a big peak, I was rejected it. And when you reject it, it's just going to get worse. I just sort of started to spin out and I didn't stop training and I didn't stop trying to figure out what the next move was, whether it was like, do I move up to the marathon? Where, where do I live? Blah, 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 blah. And then I got really depressed and really, really depressed, but I didn't really accept that either. I thought if I accepted it, then I might have to go. So I rejected it. And then it only got worse. And when you say have to go... Like to die, to die. You were scared of being your mom. Yeah, I was scared because people told me, they're like, she just like really had to go. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, I don't understand. 
but I guess that's what happened, which isn't true. But I thought that because I didn't understand her treatment. I didn't understand that mental health. I didn't understand that you can have an injury in your brain, just like you can have in your body and it can heal. I just, nobody told me that until my dad made me get help. After the Olympics, he, he's the one who, who said it's time to, it's time yeah. to go see somebody. But it was like six months later, like I just like was already so like I was such a high risk case by that time. Like it could have been prevented if I just, you know, paused or got help right away. But I like didn't and like didn't think I needed help and and made all these shifts in my life to have the next peak set up, to not lose momentum, to do all the things that people do when they have had success um, and they're afraid of the of like losing it the next day. So he made me get help. What did he say? What was that conversation like? I'm really honest with him. And and I think I was telling him things like, I ruined my life and like, it'll never be better than it was. And I've peaked and I want to go back in time and like things that are like irrational and I wasn't sleeping. So I wasn't really thinking straight and depression is a disease of depletion. So I was really depleted and then he made appointments for me to see this doctor and my dad rarely like asserts rules. Like I never got, you know, disciplined or whatever. And he rarely makes me do something. So when he does, I will do it because he has, I could count five times on my hand, you know, in five times in my life has he been like, this is what you have to do. When he says it, it mean he means it. Yeah. And he doesn't do it often. So I was like, all right, I'll go to this doctor. <laughs> he was, wearing one of those shirts that you get at the gas station that has like a wolf on it and is like marbled brown color, you uh-huh. know? I love that you remember these these details. I mean, it... Oh, yeah. Like, because I was like, okay, I like feel comfortable around this person. Mm. And I told him everything. And then he was like, all right. So, you know, when you like go rollerblading and you fall down and you cut your knee, that has happened to you, but you have a scratch on your brain. And it's okay. It can heal. But right now you're injured. And this is going to take time. But you can do it. And that was so nice. Because to compare depression to an injury, which it is, uh, made me suddenly click into a, a zone where I could envision healing. Because it made so much sense to me. I've fallen a million times. I've had a million cuts on my knees. And so he really put it in a way that I understood And then I just shifted my attention from fitness or fixing my life to health. And he became my coach. And I saw him three times a week and I did whatever he said. And it was like I was a soup and he was helping put ingredients in. And some were probably more effective than others. You were treating this like an injury. I mean, it it, it, like it. Exactly, exactly like an injury where you wake up and you listen, like when you break your leg, you are going to feel pain every day for a long time. And it doesn't mean it's not healing, right? Like if you break your foot, you feel pain. You wake up, you're like, uh, it still hurts. But you know inside if you're drinking your milk or whatever, your bone broth, you're sleeping, it is healing, right? I can understand why that would give you like a sense of of hope and and feeling of control, like that you you don't have to succumb to this. It's not as scary as it it seems. And I just wonder like, how that changed your perspective on on dealing with your mom's death. 
I thought about it so differently. So I'm a little, I'm a little sneak. And my dad, like, like they threw out everything of hers, like everything when she died, like they, meaning these random women, I don't know who they are. They threw out everything, but there were these file cabinets in our garage. And my dad's like, I'm not going to call him a hoarder. I'm going to say he collects things. And he had, there were these things in his garage. And I found when I was writing my book, I found this box of medical records from her treatment. And I was told during my treatment that actions change first, then thoughts, then feelings in that order only. So actions, then thoughts, then feelings. And that was a really good North Star because I was going to wake up every day feeling sad. That's like the pain of the broken leg where you're like, yep, it hurts. Great. You're still sick. But are you doing your actions? Like, you know, are you taking your medicine? Are you doing your cognitive behavior or whatever exercises? Are you sleeping? You know, these things. And when I looked at her records, I found some documents of worksheets that they had her do when she was sick. And they had her try to change her feelings. And specifically, there were worksheets that were like, okay, there was the one where there was A to Z, all the letters. And it looked like it was in like comic stands. It looked like a child's worksheet. And they had her write things about herself. So like, oh, she wrote overcommitted. S, she wrote selfish. Things like that. And they had her, somebody crossed out those words. And they had her write other words like selfless and ambitious. Like words that like you should feel. But the truth was, if someone is depressed they should feel and be selfish. Like that's okay. And so I think that her treatment was really, really wouldn't have helped me. Like it wouldn't have helped me to write like go get her instead of like, like, I don't know what word, just Google, whatever. I'd write like glob or something if it was the word G, you know? And, and I would have rather accepted what it was and focus on my actions. And they were just trying to force her feelings. So I had a lot of empathy for her because I realized she got terrible help. Um, and so, you know, if I were in her time and got that treatment, I'd probably be dead too. You know, it's like, it just makes sense. So I just was less upset with her. And I was also really, you know, I was like, damn, that sucks. And nobody should get that kind of treatment. And everybody should understand that this is just an injury. You talked about these external achievements being important because you wanted to show yourself that you matter. Losing your mom made you question like whether you mattered enough for her to want to wanna stay in the world. Um, help me understand that. Like with the Olympics, like the, the end of that journey was, and is, is that why the depression came afterwards? Yeah. Look, I think the Olympics was like a good way for me to understand that you could achieve the, the, the astronaut-like dream you know, of being an Olympian, I guess you could say the Olympic dream. It is its own version of that. And that is an experience that I wish for anybody who wants it. Like it's amazing, but you could accomplish the biggest dream of all time. That is so rare and difficult and still not answer and, and fill the, that thing inside that you thought that it would fill. And that doesn't mean you don't do it. Like, I think the Olympics is amazing but I think it was like, I needed to go to the edge and do the ultimate thing to realize that that is not the way 
to accomplish that particular goal of wanting to matter. I think it does make me feel a certain kind of satisfaction as like an objective, curious athlete. But the real growth is understanding the that you ha- have to find a way to let like love in in a way that you maybe don't feel like you deserve. That's my personal journey. But you had to go through this process. Like you had to yeah. think that the Olympics were going to do something and do. then realize they didn't. And then the disappointment and then open yourself up to the real stuff. I um, had to because I'm stubborn as shit. Like I'm stubborn. <laughs> so like I had to be like, no, let me check this out for myself. Like I think this mm. is the answer. So I think a lot of people like they have to learn it for themselves. If you hadn't gone through Rio and the and the hard times afterwards, where would you be? today how would things be different i think i would have crashed eventually like i think i was bound to like have a experience like that and i feel very grateful that i had it during a time when i could take the time to heal so i feel grateful maybe i would have like had another like olympic cycle where i was like living in the same kind of mindset and maybe it would have been fine but i think eventually I would have had to like go through this process. And so it was really painful. And I hope people don't have to go through like the whole thing to learn, which is why I wrote a book kind of just to be like, can you just like take a shortcut sometimes? Like nobody needs to do feel that pain really. I just don't feel as afraid anymore because I still get like little symptoms that like I need to pause and make sure I don't go into another situational depression but I'm much better at spotting it. Just like when you get an injury, you become better at slowing down when you have a little tiny feeling in your hip. You know what I mean? So that's all depression to me is. I know that there's chronic depression. I know there's other forms of depression that are more like these need to be managed. They can't be completely healed. So I can't speak to that. But mine was specifically situational, which means you're okay and then you're not. And then you can be okay again. So I know how to handle that and I just don't feel afraid anymore of that. Alexi, it's it's such a pleasure talking to you and uh Yes. I wish the best for you. Oh. If you like our show, leave us a review if you can on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I want to tell you about the great team who puts the show together. In the Moment is produced by Sarah McCrory with help from Michael Garofalo. Sound design and mixing by Michael Rayfield and Jocelyn Gonzalez at PRX Productions. Britt Kahn is our talent booker. Our production manager is BJ Olin. Story research was done by Joe Levin. Kevin Sullivan is the head of talk. Gotham Chopra, Amit Sankaran, and Adam Schlossman are our executive producers. Fearless Media is our consulting producer. And special thanks to Teresa Tran. In the Moment is a production of Religion of Sports and PRX. I'm David Green. Happy holidays. We'll be back next time with another athlete and their moment. Moment.